In episode 97 of The Nerd By Word, Dave and I will be giving our final assessment on the amazing Spider-Man Beyond arc, much in the same fashion that we did for the end of the Nick Spencer run. So grab your web shooters, because it's time to swing. Welcome into the 97th episode of the Nerd by Word. Good God, how have we almost made it to 100? The only podcast worthy of both Mjolnir and the Elden Ring. More on that later. In today's episode, Dave and I will be reviewing the Beyond storyline of Amazing Spider-Man now that the arc has reached its conclusion. We did the same style of episode after Nick Spencer finished up his run on the title, so it is time to do so once again. But first, we've got some for you dave i thought we were saving uh the big bad corpos for uh later today i don't know man uh apparently we need to talk a little about activision because activision blizzard has been in the news for absolutely no good reason uh for months it seems like every time that they pop up in my news feed they pooped the bed yet all over again yet uh here this time uh we have a bloomberg report that actually indicates that they may have done something right apparently activision blizzard said it will convert about 1100 u.s based temporary or contract quality assurance workers to full-time staffers now uh, activision blizzard has put up with you know years of criticism about this how they rely on part-time employees how those part-time employees are paid very poorly have bad working conditions and then as soon as a particular project ends they kind of get the shaft well uh this is actually a, a huge move for, for the uh company as basically their workforce on the publishing side increases by about 25 percent and they're boosting minimum salary for workers to $20 an hour, according to a statement from the company. Uh, the workers will also be eligible for the first time for full company benefits. So this is a, this is a really huge deal. Um, it's a very, very uh, common uh, and much criticized practice across the video game industry. So it's pretty common for uh, these uh, workers to be tied to a particular project and to have extremely poor working conditions. Um, so basically, they have a job for a hot second, uh, and then suddenly, as soon as the project is done, um, they are gone from the company. So uh, having a more permanent staff that you know has better working conditions and is better paid, that, that is a step certainly in the right direction. So I, I'm hoping this is the start of something in the video game industry where quality assurance uh, people get uh, better pay and are treated better because God knows in this day and age of the day one patch, we need quality assurance more than ever before. Yeah, so insert uh, condescending uh, clap image. Like, good job. A broken, what's the old saying? A broken clock is right twice a day. Yeah, it's about time, Activision, that you got something right. Um, and and what, what I find uh, particularly encouraging is, particularly in the last year on social media, the discourse around, like, unpaid internships and freelance work being criminally underpaid 
has really been like a light has been brought upon that. And so I'm hoping that this is one of the first steps in rectifying that injustice. Um, There's so many folks that, you know, go unthanked, unappreciated in the entertainment industries that we, you know, partake in. Um, And I'm, I'm hoping that this is a step in the right direction. One of the funniest exchanges I saw with this news is, um, a Microsoft shill account, like his at name was like something like Xbox boy or something like that. See, this is Microsoft influence. And somebody was like, dude, they haven't even done anything yet. This has nothing to do with Microsoft. Like the purchase hasn't been completed. And then he was like, well, if you don't think that the influence, so that was hilarious to see. Um, And I'm a Microsoft fan, but I draw the line at, you know, going up for any kind of big corporation uh, like that. Um, So that was funny. But again, uh, my biggest takeaway from this is I hope that this is just the first ripple effect in things to come and that people are adequately compensated for their contributions. Yeah, absolutely. I'll totally agree with that. Now, now, Chris, uh, we go from good news to WTF news. So let's (laughs) go ahead and uh, and dive right into your news story this week. Um, Well, um, I've particularly with the the emotional highs that I had in watching WrestleMania last weekend, Dave. Um, I ponied up for the five dollars of Peacock to to watch that, and it was it was great. It was great. Um, Vince McMahon's horrible stunner re- reception, notwithstanding. Um, uh, but but that was really fun. So I'm kind of dipping my toe back into to professional wrestling again with the WWE. So um, I say all that because it looks like Jason Aaron is in his heel turn era. And, you know, when we started this podcast, um, uh, God, what was it? Almost two years now? Um you know, I was raving about his work. Everything that I had read from him on Thor um, was just like a, a revelation. It was one of my favorite things I'd ever read. But then Avengers came and <laughs> I don't know if he used up all his good juju with Thor because WTF is literally what I say every time now. I mean, we've talked at length about the extremely quizzical retcon of uh, Thor's parentage and it, it and the Phoenix is now his mom and it's I think of that Ryan Reynolds clip where he takes down his surgical mask and says but why like what is the point like with a character that you know that he can write well why why this so you add to the fact um, of, of all that mess and then you have making national headlines and being the butt of uh, the jokes in an Amber Ruffin show segment. Highly recommend you check that out with the absolute catastrophe wa- that was um, the Princess Matawaka, excuse me, Matawaka in King Conan number three. U.S. history students and let's be honest, Disney fans will know her better as Pocahontas. Uh, the extremely uncomfortably vomit-inducing sexualized version of that character had to walk all of that back. That was a hot mess and a half. So then we come, and it was announced this week that we're doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on this Thor being 
given birth, like the Phoenix being Thor's mom. It's just wild. So we're getting a a one shot uh, Avengers one billion BC number one, and it's going right back into it, and it's giving much more detail as to how the first wielder of the Phoenix Force. And Odin got it on, and Thor was the result of that. Why? Wow, chicka, wow, wow. Right? <laughs> After all these years of publication, of all the things to retcon about this character, and and you know, I said this at the time when the whole Phoenix mommy thing came about. As someone who is the head of a blended family and does not pay much credence to biology is the only methods of having a family in someone who champions found family stories, why are we getting off on the technicalities of who his biological mother is? And I know I've nerd commended it before, and every issue almost is an absolute slam dunk from Donny Cates on the on the uh, solo Thor title. And there's even a panel between Freya, who Thor is, has never been his biological mother. His biological mother forever has been Gaia. Um, or Gaia, depending on your pronunciation, but Freya is the mother that raised him. And there's a beautiful page um, between Thor and Freya. And she says, who changed your godly diapers? I am your mother. And so it feels like we're going out of our way to just sidestep this nonsense. And I don't know why we we keep going down this road, Dave. I, I'm not quite sure what happens uh, with uh, comic book creators who have highly acclaimed work and then suddenly just kind of lose their mind and, and, and go off the deep end. I'm glad to see that uh, that Jason Aaron has not gone full, you know, ultimatum on us yet, a la Jeff Loeb. Um, but, but everything that I'm hearing about his Avengers run is questionable at best, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, I don't really feel like I need... Like, like if you're going to make a one-shot about somebody's secret origin, I would, like, hope that you go into their youth or something and, like, you know, it, explain, like, an important event in their youth that, that informs who they are in the present day of, of continuity. I don't really need to be in the bedroom for the moment of conception, <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, I, I don't think that, that this is really... Um, what I need <laughs> out yeah. of a comic book. I don't need to be there when Thor's conceived. It's a little much. Um but I'm I'm just shocked that that Marvel seems to be like really doubling down on this and being like, yeah, this is a great idea. Let's just you know let's keep leaning into this this retcon. Um, it's just really really weird. Um, I'm not quite sure what the underlying motivation is for that. I I don't see it opening up all that many story possibilities except for Thor to have a few uh, mommy issues maybe. Um, but beyond that, like like. Do you see any long-term benefit of a retcon like this? I don't feel like it really opens up a lot of story possibilities, Chris. No, I don't either. And, you know, as a huge X-Men fan and as a Thor fan, those two franchises have never really intermingled a whole lot. Um, there was the Siege storyline um, and a couple of things back in the 80s where you had mutants going to Asgard and whatnot. But like... Of, of all the Avengers, I would say that Thor is probably the least involved with mutanity. Um, and it's really a shame because there's so much I want to like. Every time I try to go back into 
um, this run. And I'm, I'm full disclosure. I haven't read even any of the issues in question. Um, I've gotten to about pay or excuse me, issue 17. And there's just something lacking in this. And to make this one of the focal points of this run, I think is a huge misstep because there are so many elements that keep me coming back and wanting to read this title. You think of T'Challa for the first time, at least to my knowledge, being the chairperson or the leader of the Avengers in, in, in change of Tony Stark or Captain America. So that's fascinating to me. And as a huge black Panther fan, and then I tune in and he's barely even a focal point. Like he's running the whole show, but they don't even really talk about T'Challa. You know, Robbie Reyes is a really fun character that I've enjoyed getting to know over the past few years as Ghost Rider. And just the whole concept of changing out a motorcycle for a muscle car is really cool. And, um, you know, Doctor Strange being an Avenger and, and, and introducing magic into the, the flagship team. Um, you know, She-Hulk, who now uh, on this run goes by Hulk, was, is fascinating. So there's so many cool things I want to love about this run. But focusing on something so minuscule in the grand scheme of things is just it's it makes your head spin. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think so too. And is it possible that that Aaron is just running out of steam a little bit? Like yeah. he 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 kind of. I mean, if we're going to be completely honest, he kind of uh, you know kind of blew the load when it came to to Thor. Like is is probably one of the defining runs on the character. Right. I don't think it's I don't think it's possible in today's industry to to pull that off every time. That, that you have a run on any kind of long-running franchise like that. At some point, you got to just like burn out a little bit. You can't be, you know, character-defining every time you step up to the plate, I guess is what I'm saying. So uh, may- maybe maybe Thor is sort of going to be his magnum opus and, and everything moving forward from there is just never going to quite measure up. I mean, I, I really don't know. Yeah, and, and you and I were talking about this before recording, and I talked about it on Twitter with uh, Comic Book Carol, the, a friend of the show as well, is is it it feels the same everything that i feel for aaron as a creator is the exact same thing i feel about brian michael bendis it's crazy because on the one hand they've written some of they both respectively written some of my all-time favorite comic books you think of ultimate spider-man and i love bendis's uncanny x-men where cyclops is a revolutionary but then you also have like the end couldn't come quickly enough at Marvel, particularly the Miles book fell off the face of the earth after he came back and joined the 616 and after the Secret Wars, and nobody knew what to do with him. Like, here he is, a highly popular character. You could see that his trajectory, his stock was rising up, and that did indeed become the case with, you know, Into the Spider-Verse and the popularity of the character coming into the mainstream and then like his book. And, you know, so if you're getting kids like, Oh, I want to read a Miles Morales book. And then you check in. I was like, what is going on here? And then you see the same thing with Aaron. And one of the things I praised him and his, you know, ideas about the time was I was sad to see him leave Thor the title, but the story was complete and done. And I was like, Oh good. He's getting off at the right time and we're not dragging this to death. And it's one of those you know, series where they, you know, like Scrubs, where they make an eighth season and just like, can we just pretend that, that never nobody happened? wanted? Yeah, 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 pretend that never happened. Um, <laughs> and so, um, you know, it's almost like I spoke too soon because here we go. Yeah, and I wonder, I wonder too, if he would have continued 
um, if he would have continued working on Thor beyond, you know, the that kind of climax mm-hmm. to his tale, would this have been like is this sort of a lost, forgotten Thor right. plot point that he was thinking about right. and and then rejected, and now that he's on Avengers, he's like, oh well, I got this old let nugget. Me t- let me shoehorn it in, yeah. Yeah, let me go ahead and get this out of the mothballs and see what I can do with that. Like, it, you know, it, it makes you wonder a little bit because you know he is he's really really acclaimed for his Thor run, yeah. and then he he turns around and basically like, well, you know, I'm I'm gonna focus on Thor and I have this this old plot or whatever that I was thinking about using. Well, I'm just going to go ahead and use that on Avengers. It just, the whole thing feels just odd. And, and it feels like in the case of both he and Bendis, it feels like if a claim is a currency, they're cashing it in. Um, and like they have like unchecked authority on these titles that they've worked on. And you've famously shared your feelings on what he did with Superman but it feels like they're cashing it in on like really frivolous stuff and creative choices. So, um, and, and it just feels like because of the history that they have in the industry, people are like, Oh, okay, we'll just let them do what they want because you know, they've earned it or something. It's, it's George Lucas syndrome on the prequels Mm -hmm. is what it is. When everybody just says yes and amen, rather than, you know, there being somebody to kind of be like, hey, you know, maybe this is a little dumb. Maybe this is going a little far. Maybe you need to refocus on this. Having constructive criticism as a creator, I think, is incredibly important. And that's really the editor's job in that case uh, when it comes to comic books. And that that entire process is something we're going to talk about um in our big talk, which we'll get to in just a second as well. And that that's one of the strengths not to put the cart before the horse of, of what we have there in the beyond arc. Absolutely. All right. Without further ado, let's get to that by word, big talk. That's nerd news for this week. If you have any questions or comments or theories on these two stories, be sure to hit us up on social media at nerd by word on Twitter and Instagram or that nerd Dave and that nerd Chris respectively uh, individually. All right, we are back for this week's spy word. And this one we're calling the byword goes beyond because I can't help myself when it comes to alliteration. But a few weeks ago, probably a few months ago, we did a post-mortem, pun fully intended, um, on the Nick Spencer Kindred run uh, of Amazing Spider-Man. And we're going to do the same thing now with um, the Amazing Spider-Man Beyond arc, because uh, it just feels apropos as we're starting a new run on the title. We're both huge fans of Spider-Man, and a lot of our listeners are as well. So this is very apropos for this podcast. And as is customary for us with the review process, we like to put, um, in the spirit of Amit, we like to balance the scales. We put the likes, we put the dislikes, and we'll see where the scales tip at the end of the day. Um, you can tell I've been watching Moon Knight. Um, more on that next week. A little week. bit. <laughs> more on that next week. Uh, but first, we're going to go with the likes, the positives, we each have three apiece. Dave, what is your first like on the Beyond Art? I think that uh, the creative team came in with a really strong overall concept. You know, sidelining uh, Peter Parker, 
uh, due to this, you know, accident while he was fighting these villains and therefore kind of opening the door for Ben Riley's return that he would do, you know, a return to the Spider-Man role in conjunction with Beyond Corporation and that they're up to something shady in the background. Uh, I think the core concept overall uh, of this particular storyline is really, really strong. It opens up a whole bunch of interesting, you know, venues, and they did explore, if not all, at least a bunch of those. You know how you know Peter's recovery uh, and and the whole uh, question of how he's going to recover from this. You know, retraining himself and his body. Uh, you know, uh, Aunt May's role in that, which was fantastic. Uh, Mary Jane and Black Cat kind of working together to try to you know protect him. All of that stuff, sort of as a B storyline uh, until the end, anyways, <clears throat> was was really really cool. And then the A storyline having you know a, a, an underlying mystery about what Beyond's actual. Um, sort of uh, overall master plan is considering that they're sort of a, a shady company in the in the marvel universe anyways you know it opened up a lot of interesting story avenues so they came to i think they they came sort of to the party with, with the best of party favors like they knew exactly what they were wanting to do this wasn't just a this is my version of spider-man uh it wasn't so much about this is you know insert creator x doing Peter Parker. It was, we have a story to tell. It's a very, very particular kind of story. And, and I think uh, a lot of creators these days don't do that. I don't think they necessarily come into a project with like a, a, a nailed down, ironed out, this is my high concept for what I'm doing. I think most creators just come on a book and say, okay, this is me doing, you know, this is Bendis doing Superman. You know, this is whoever doing whatever book rather than being sort of high concept and saying we're, we're going to do something very very specific and i think that is an overall strength of the book chris yeah and i, and I don't want to you know dive straight into my first point prematurely but uh, i think that's one of the strengths of having a collaborative team like we did here um and one of my greatest criticisms of the spencer arc for which i was famously a defender for a very long time uh, and then it all fell off. I feel like the Tyra Banks meme of we were all rooting for you. Like I, I put my neck out on Spider-Man Twitter of all places. One of the most vile corners of the Internet, Spider-Man Twitter. I defended you. Uh, but yeah, one of my greatest nitpicks or criticisms of the entire Spencer arc was it was it, it was like much in the same line of the Star Wars sequel trilogy. There wasn't a clear plan. Like it was so lackluster in the planning phase. And I don't know if you can chalk that up to one primary creative voice, you know, from a writer's perspective uh, versus, you know, three or four people like we have in this scenario. So you bounce each ideas off of each other. We're like, um, I love you, but that doesn't work for me. That doesn't really make sense. Um, but yeah, this was a very clean, neat uh, in, in some respects, too clean uh, and too thought out, um, you know, kind of arc. And it was a very clear plan. But overall, I thought it was a very sharp, very smart storyline. And it's not easy to do with a character that's been around for 60 plus years. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Let's go ahead and dive into your uh, your first big point here, Chris, because I think it's really it, it ties in very strongly with what we're talking about here. Well, I love each and every person 
um, that was on this writing team. Um, you know, I, I've, I've talked about this um, ad nauseum uh, in effect, but I love all these people's writing chops. I've, I'm a... a I'm a person who goes writing over art. So, um, you know, as a writer myself, um, you know, that's the thing I, I hook onto, you know, we, we did an episode and I do love art, but the thing that I hone in on is writing. And so, um, I really loved everybody on this creative team. We had Zeb Wells, we had, um, we had Saladin Ahmed, we had, you know, Kelly Thompson, we had, um, you know, uh, Cody Ziegler, who, oh my God, I can't believe that I haven't gotten around to it, but Spider-Punk, like, is sold out. Like, it's the biggest hit thing, and I can't wait. It's on my to-read pile. I've got it right here. Uh, and if I'm neglecting anybody, I can't quite seem to pull up my list right now, but I loved everybody on this writing team. And like I said before, that entire creative writing process um, was just clearly a collaborative process and bouncing off um, you know, it's like when, when we have our students do like articles and they have to peer review and you kind of iron out some of that stuff before you turn it into the teacher or some of the, like the silly little mistakes. And that's very clear there. And um, I have my druthers, if you will, about uh, editorial at Marvel, particularly in the spider office. Sorry. But um, so I think a lot of that stuff, um, you know, kind of ironed itself out. Uh, in that process. And I think it was all for the better. And I, I love what every single individual brought um, to the character. Having a female voice like Kelly Thompson writing Peter Parker was hella fun. Like it was super, super fun. Um, Pat Gleason, excuse me. Um, how did I forget Gleason? <laughs> but yeah, it, it was so fun. I absolutely loved it. Um, uh, the writing team, it was sharp. The dialogue was funny like it was a real return to form for peter parker who one of you know the things that really drew me to the character were those snappy repartees and it was it was chef's kiss this entire run i will i will totally agree that the writing was strong across the board i really don't think there's much i can add to what you said other than it was just super super enjoyable um and <clears throat> although there were definitely highlights of, of spencer's run this felt more more peter parker ish i guess I, I don't know quite how to say it like the biggest thing to me i think in the writing is that you know ben riley felt like ben riley i mean the character had come back uh previously uh and they kind of did like this whole villain turn and then this whole anti anti-hero turn that they did um where he was um you know like in vegas or something was going by scarlet spider again mm -hmm. but he was more like he was more like Ben Poole than Ben Riley, yes. I guess is the best way to put it. Um, I read the first issue. This, I read the first issue and checked out. I was like, "This is not for me." Yeah, I went a little further into it than that, and it didn't. It didn't quite hum. Let's put it that way. But the point is that this wasn't just, I think, a return to form for Amazing Spider-Man the series. I think it was a return to form for Ben Riley in particular, who actually, for the bulk of this run, actually felt like. Ben Riley again. And I was very, very, um, I just was very, very excited to see that because I am, you know, admittedly uh, a pretty darn big Ben Riley fan. Okay. And Dave, I'm going to shoehorn this one in here because it it's 
3B, but one of my additional likes that I should be in here, I love the relationship between Ben and Janine. Like, that was awesome. Like, it was really cool to see that as a contrast to Ben and, or, or excuse me, Peter and MJ, or Peter and Felicia, which is my end game. Sorry, MJ. I, I realized that this week. I love Peter and Felicia just as hair more especially after this arc um just just a skosh just a skosh. either one's great either one's an a plus but that's just me um but i loved that as kind of like this juxtaposition of you know how is it for ben in a romantic pairing and i i escaped as where janine shows up for the first time she was all new for me was that in the vegas arc you know what? I want to say that she is. Um, she goes back further than that, but I would definitely have to to look up, uh, look that up because my, I, I need to brush up on my Ben Riley history a little bit. I seem to recall Janine going back further, but I can't speak to that with authority. Yeah, it was it was giving me vibes of um, one of the greatest comic book issues that we've ever had to have and to hold that sensational Spider Man annual by Matt Fraction. Um, that post civil war Pete and MJ right before they destroyed everything by, you know, OMD. Yes, exactly. That that's a, such a fantastic. We're like it's uh, like a Bonnie and Clyde, issue. like a Bonnie, like a Bonnie and Clyde. We're on the run. We have each other, and that's all we have in this world. And that's what Ben and Janine had clearly through this arc. And I'm excited to follow them in the future. Yeah, no, she, I think Janine uh, appears to, I'm, I'm kind of trying to look it up. Janine appears to be going back to the original um, clone saga. Yeah, they met originally in Salt Lake City, Utah. So this is this is definitely uh, Spider-Man The Lost Years, I think, uh, which kind of uh, told the story of Ben Riley on the road for those five years before he returned to New York City uh, when, when Peter didn't know that he existed anymore. So uh, yeah, Janine goes way back, actually, to the original wow. clone saga. Who would have thought that I have holes in my Spider-Man history? <laughs> well, there is so much. Well, I, could, I thought, I tell you what, I thought she went back further, but it's it's been a while since I chewed through the whole Clone Saga stuff and all the Ben Riley issues. So uh, I'm a little rusty on that myself. Okay, so in a perfect symbiotic relationship, since we're talking Spider-Man, I can't talk about that without symbiotes. Uh, we talked about, we glommed on the writing, rightfully so, but let's give love to uh, the other aspect of this, Dave. Well, let's talk art, man, because the art was fantastic on this. I mean, there were a whole bunch of artists that were uh, involved, and I don't think I can hit all of them, you know, all of them. But the two that really stood out to me in particular, A, of course, uh, Patrick Leeson, who knocks it out of the park every time. And then also Sarah Pacelli, Pitkelly, Pacelli, God knows I'm horrible with pronouncing names. Um is the art for for those issues in particular just really hummed and there's something really cool about the artwork in general because they did not just you know like straight up spider-man art they did a lot of design work behind the scenes too so there was also you know a lot of design work going on behind the scenes i i have to say that although initially i was not a fan i ended up really really liking the redesigned ben riley spider-man suit it still had vibes of his original take on the Spidey suit and at the same time, you know, changed things up enough uh, so it was unique. I really, really liked the look. And so the artwork, I think, across the board was really strong and it gave us it gave us so many cool moments. I mean, who could who could forget the uh, the black cat cake meme that we got out of this? I mean, oh my God. <laughs> this, the artwork let me cut my mic off. Let me cut my mic off for a little bit. 
<laughs> so I'll just say, meme-worthy or not, the, the art across the board was really, really strong on this project. And it just, it, it felt right across the board. It felt right for the characters. You know, the, the, the art, I would really have to look it up now. Um, I, I would love to know who did the art on the hospital issue, where um, Mary Jane has to save Peter from something there in the hospital. Um, that whole issue, the whole vibe of that issue was so cool. Um, this is like the art in general just always went perfect hand in hand with the writing. So I can't really, I, I, can't, I have nothing bad to say about the art on this. It was just spot on, man. Yeah, I, I love, I mean, like that was probably the final nail in the coffin that tipped the scales for, for Team Felicia for me. That that whole issue. Oh, well, that whole, I, I, sh- I should say it was that whole day of issues because there was that great, 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 great issue. My, I think it might be my favorite issue of the entire arc was um god it's it's a tie because they both came out the same day i was i was on a high for like two weeks after i read that but there was the amazing spider-man black cat and mj issue that i nerd commended like the week that i read it but then on the same day we had the asm proper issue where captain america and felicia were training him and getting him up out of the bed i i love that one so much and that's the one where the cape meme came from but both of those issues were tops for me and untouchable yeah well i will i will also say that uh, i had mad love for the uh the art um on the whole um uh aunt may dr octopus issue yes the the, the dialogue was super playful so the writing was spot on to begin with but the art really really leaned into that sort of flirtatious banter between the two and really perfectly captured that i mean there's it's hard to point at any single issue of this series and go well that was crap like there is it was just quality comic book storytelling from both writers and artists and and Cody Ziegler wrote that issue, and and so that gives me super. I know we talked about like, oh, what we I think it was two weeks ago we talked about. We don't know what we're gonna get out of She Hulk, but he's one of the head writers on that show. So I mean, like, I'm super excited about that. And then Spider Punk, I'm kicking myself that I still haven't read it. I had a lot of comics to get caught up on, but uh, Spider Punk is one of my most anticipated reads in a long time as well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. All right, Chris, what is your second big like? All right, we dabbled in it, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. The additional one-shot stories, which were extremely lacking in the Spencer era, all due respect, they they didn't really tie into the main story at all. They were inconsequential. They didn't really do a whole lot. I thought that not only were they a strength in some places, in the case of the Black Cat and MJ one and the one you referenced with Doc Ock and Aunt May, I thought that they were some of the best issues of the entire era. And I I thought they were better than the ASM proper issues. So um, there's also a great one with Monica Rambeau towards the end. I think it was like the next to last issue of the entire arc. So that was great as a huge, huge, huge Monica Rambeau fan, getting her to basically flex for an entire issue. Um, it was really great and makes me want to go back and, and read some more Monica stuff. But but seeing her brought to the forefront in, ahead of you know the release of Marvels again and on Off the Wings and the success of WandaVision, I'm super excited to see her as a as a prime player once again because it's been far too long but so yeah these additional one-shot stories were amazing pun intended 
I do have a critique of those, uh, but I'll save that for my dislikes. I will say that I really, really enjoyed the one-shots. I think you're spot on in saying that they're much more interesting and much more consequential to the overall story than they were uh, during during the Spencer run. Um, and I hope that if they're planning with the new creative team taking over, if they're planning on having these dot whatever issues yeah. uh, in the future, that they take note from the Beyond era and make sure that these are not just, um, you know, the extra extra money to make without any real consequence to the overall story or, or being interesting and, and well executed in their own right. Like make it worth your reader's time and money guys, because during the Spencer era, many of those particularly in the second half of his run were not. Whereas I think during beyond they were fantastic. And I think, you know, and I don't want this to be a let's all dunk on Nick Spencer episode, but I think that was an unfair expectation to heap upon his shoulders. And maybe that was a self-inflicted wound. But having just one person doing the principal amount, I know they had a co-writer or two towards the end there. I think Ed Brisson, a previous guest on the show, and Matthew Rosenberg came on to help with the writing there as well, if memory serves. But essentially 95 to 98% of that writing was all Spencer and having a a strong and robust writer's room, um, you know, to say, you know, Cody, you're going to go write this issue with aunt May and doc Ock. And then Kelly Thompson, you're going to go write this. And is that Wells, you're going to go write this. I think it was just so masterfully planned out versus putting all of that responsibility uh, and work onto just one person's shoulders, at least for the most part. So I thought that was another, you know, uh, star on or pip on the general stars uh, or whatever the military term is. I don't know. I'm not military, but uh, anyways, another feather in the cap. Here we go. That's a better reference. Feather in the cap of this writing team. Do you do you frequently put feathers in your caps? Um, no, but I bought some cheap, <laughs> I bought some, listen, I, I'm, I'm obsessed right now. My mom gave me an air fryer and I'm obsessed with making my own chicken wings, but I bought a bag of frozen stuff from the discount grocery store. And there's a reason that it was discounted. I had to pluck my own feathers out of it. And now you have, have many feathers for your cups. <laughs> right. And so now I'm kind of like traumatized <laughs> about, you know, <laughs> feathers. <laughs> That was my week. Mm, fun times. Uh, Dave, uh, your third and final like of the Beyond era. Well, they see, here's the thing. Uh, when this was first announced, we thought this might you know, run for a couple of years or something. And it ended up not. Uh, it, it was pretty, pretty over pretty fast. It almost now, in, in hindsight, feels like, feels like sort of a... Uh, a temporary band-aid until they get a, a new long-term uh, creative team in place. Um, so on the one hand, that's regrettable, and I'll talk more about that later. But on the on, on this hand, which I really want to talk about as a like, they came in with a clear ending in mind and a very, very clear um, ending point that this was not something that uh, was open-ended. Let's see how long you can run it. Let's go 100 issues and see what happens. This was very much a, you know, in and out, wham, bam, there it is. And the good news about that in a lot of ways is it's sort of similar to what we hear about, about TV series these days. When you have a season that lasts 22 or 24 episodes, 
ultimately a lot of that stuff ends up being kind of filler material because there's not enough story to fill that many episodes but when you whittle it down to 13 or in some cases maybe six or eight then suddenly you are able to tell a very tight very focused story and i think that holds true with the beyond era as well i don't think there was any there was no fat on this meat you know this was this was all steak and no grizzle i guess is the best way to put it and and i think that is extremely rare in comic book storytelling these days um even i think even if you go 20 years back i'm reading a lot of stuff from the like late 90s and early 2000s right now on on dc universe infinite and and it's it's even on very like acclaimed runs you end up with these issues that just kind of sit there and don't seem to do anything much for the overall story and i don't think you had this with beyond it was tight it was focused and i think because of that it was a breath of fresh air in in big two superhero storytelling yeah it's funny that you say that because when you say uh filler episodes i have one clear image that stands alone that comes to mind and that is that episode i think it's in the third season of daredevil is when we get Karen goes back home to West Virginia or whatever. I'm like, I don't care about this. Give me Kingpin and Bullseye. I don't care about her druggy brother or boyfriend or whatever. It was such a um, but yeah. um yeah, I, I think this really, when I sit back and think about it, it was like another um superior Spider-Man. Like it was, you knew that this was not going to be the norm going forward for too long. And even with that in you know in mind, um, I thought that they they did exactly right and they they nailed it. So I I have you know no no criticisms with that regard. All right. So final like for you. What do you got? I thought, um, and this will be interesting. You know, when we dive into the dislikes, but one of the things that was speaking of art, and I neglected to mention this when we talked about the art. Um, the concept of lost or stolen memories and like these nefarious plans of the beyond corporation, I thought that was fascinating. And one of the most traumatizing and jarring images, um, I can't remember which issue it was, but like, there's that image where like the whole splash page is just Ben's face, but there's nothing there. And there's this like empty void. And that was just like absolutely jarring in the best possible way that I was hooked. Dare I, dare I say his face was a chasm? <laughs> wow. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, that makes sense now. Just got it. <laughs> <laughs> Delayed reaction. Um <laughs> But yeah, so I thought that was a really fascinating thing. Um, it kind of teetered on shaky ground there towards the end. It kind of sped things up as we headed towards the climax and the, and the resolution. But I thought that that concept was fascinating of what sets him apart. Um, you know, the best clone stories, if we can say that, are something where it takes the basis, the basic template of the character we so love that's been cloned and then turns it on its head. It's almost like an alt universe in the same main universe proper is, you know, the best clone stories that I cling to or somebody like Madeline Pryor, who like is breaking bad because her husband, you know, was a piece of crap. As much as I love Cyclops, he did that woman wrong. Um, 
but you know somebody like maddie yeah, I, 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 I too hate how he took scissors to all of her clothes and now she has nothing to wear it's very sad <laughs> i'm not complaining listen this this is consider this our thirst our thirst trap episode um i don't know why you guys are saying bye i'm saying hi felicia um hello um but yeah so i think the best clone storylines are they take like these certifiable these identifiable characters like gene gray like peter parker and really make like like play with that like what if gene gray broke bad what if peter parker wasn't this upstanding kind of guy and that's for better for worse with ben we'll get into that but um at least gives him some depth of character and like something was robbed of him and seeing that from his point of view rather uh you know most of the clone saga it feels like um uh, and and peter and ben's storylines we get peter's perspective like oh you've cloned me and this is how you've done it to me it's interesting and it's cool to see it from ben's perspective rather than i'm just like peter he's my aunt may too i don't know why i went southern there in queens but um uh, so yeah i thought that was a really fascinating thing Okay, so I obviously have a lot of thoughts on how this whole thing wrapped up, and we'll get to there very, very shortly. But I do want to say this. The base concept of how they're messing with his memories and stuff, I think is absolutely interesting. Um, I don't, I'm not exactly happy with where that ended, but I am happy with sort of that as an exploration um, of of the differences b- between between Ben and Peter and you know what happens if we take these these you know uncle ben memories from ben but peter has them how does that change their personalities i th- i think that is an interesting thread to pull on but i don't agree with the conclusion they came to which is something we can talk about in the dislikes a little bit but but i agree with you that in principle this is a really really interesting concept and worth exploring it, it also i should add a previous nerd commendation basically read everything al ewing does but in particular uh in particular the mighty avengers and that entire arc you get a lot of context with the beyond corporation there's a different person behind it but a lot of this will make a whole lot more sense that nefarious like meddling with people's lives probably the primary reason we did this episode dave what is your first dislike I saw this, your tweet. Might... I saw your tweet and I said, oh, this is right for the picking, baby. So I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that this might take a few minutes. So strap in uh, those of you that don't want to hear my ramblings on Ben Riley. Uh, you may want to skip ahead about five minutes or so. Um, so my major dislike with the series is Ben's final fate, which is. He, he's sort of this broken clone, right? He's missing all these memories. He falls into this vat of, you know, whatever Joker style. And he comes back out and he's basically now, uh, I guess, uh, Baja Blast Spider-Man. Um, off not uh, Dollar Tree symbiote something villain called Chasm. So, and that's, and that's kind of where they leave it uh, as far as Ben is concerned. Um, and I understand to a certain extent what they're trying to do here because it has been attempted before, right? I mean, you have this this vestige, this leftover character from the, the Clone Saga that has a sizable fandom and, you know, they're trying to find a place for him. And the, the, the natural place 
first, at, you know, years after the Clone Saga when they brought him back, was, hey, let's make him a villain. So we'll make him the guy behind, you know, the clone conspiracy. He's the new Jackal, basically. Um, but that didn't quite hit either. So then they try to relaunch a Scarlet Spider book with, you know, a great writer at the helm, uh, Peter David. But uh, the, the marching order seemed to have been make him as little as Peter Parker as possible. And that's when we basically got, you know, this this anti-hero, this, this giant jerk, ben, ben Pool, I guess you can call him. Um, and then that didn't work. So let's kill him off the, again. The, no, ben, the, Benish, the Benisher? The Benisher, I like it. So then we kill him off again, but hey, we bring him back again, right? And 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 then here's where we stand. We we're at the the beginning of this uh, Beyond storyline, and so the end effect of the Beyond storyline is just basically go through the cycle again of trying to make him a villain, only this time with a more interesting concept. You know, sort of this warped version of Peter Parker who's missing these memories, which you know, in the basics is a decent enough concept. The problem, of course, is that people like myself, who are Ben Riley fans, are, are probably never going to really accept Ben as a, a villain um, any more than, you know, we can accept any number of interesting characters that we've come to love over the years as as bad guys suddenly. The thing about Ben, and, and I think this were... we're Spider-Man Beyond makes this horrible misstep, is that his conception was for him to be the character that Marvel could do things with that they didn't feel they could do with Peter Parker anymore. So you have Peter Parker, who's older, who's married, who is uh, in the time of, you know, leading up to the clone saga, becoming this major sourpuss. And so they introduced a clone who is a little more hip, um, who is single and has an interesting dating life, you know, and and still quips and is interested still in like making gadgets and stuff. And then, of course, they they pulled the brakes on making him the permanent Spider-Man and killed him off. And in the meantime, over the decades now, Peter has sort of regained all these traits that they wanted to concentrate into Ben Riley because it was not how Peter was portrayed at the time. And here we have a Peter Parker that is, you know basically single again although you know he's kind of on a, on and off again with MJ these days but you know, basically single and has this dating life and he's he's making more gadgets and he's made all these alternate suits and he ran his own company and we got we have now the situation where i think writers at marvel feel the only way to do the things you can't do with peter parker with ben riley now is to make him a villain the problem with that is that that's simply not the case. We we now live in a world where there is more than one Spider-Man, where there are you know dozens of Spider people. We can have a Spider Punk. We can have a, a Gwen Stacy Spider Woman. We have Miles Morales. We have all these characters that are ostensibly Spider people, and I find it difficult to believe that Marvel feels they don't have a place in that slate for a Ben Riley, particularly given that he has a sizable following and then there are plenty of fans of the character. So then how do you fix Ben Riley? How do you find a place for him in all of this? There are so many different ways you can go here, but but the one that interests me the most as as a reader is to go back to his original purpose and say, okay, we're going to do with this character the things we can't do with Peter Parker. And what is the biggest no-no at Marvel right now with Peter Parker? Can't be married. Can't be married. Can't have a kid. 
can't be a family man, can't balance, you know, f- a family life with trying flip to be that, a superhero. Flip that on its, flip that, I see where you're going, flip that on its head. That's exactly right. And you have a pre-existing relationship between Ben and Janine. So let's go ahead and pull that trigger. You know, the end of the story could have been that that Ben feels that it's time for Peter to take over because he made this horrible mistake signing up with the Beyond Corporation. He moves to another city with Janine. We can go ahead and have him pop the question at the end to, to her before he leaves. And then you know, let's go ahead and, and play family man. You know, he's raising a kid. Does the kid have spider powers? What does that mean? How can he, you know, help an individual grow into their own when he's basically still feeling like he's a knockoff? He hasn't even grown into his own yet. And then, you know, circumstances make him put on a suit again, the Scarlet Spider suit, a Spider-Man suit, a suit. Let's put him out there and have him be a hero again and, and have him balance that family life because this is the one thing that Peter Parker is not allowed to have. And there you return to the original purpose of the Ben Riley character. Do the things with him that you can't do with Peter. So that that is why I think the the villain route that they took to the conclu- with the conclusion of this story it, it just was the wrong move. Because there are things you can do with this character that would be interesting, that would be things that fans want to see. He does not have to be a villain. And I will throw this in too, just for good measure. Moving the, moving the, the, um, removing the memories of Uncle Ben from uh, Ben, I don't think would necessarily mean that he is not a good person or is not heroic. Um, there's a line from um, the Miss Marvel comic book uh, that good is not something you are, good is what you do. And I think that Ben, even if you look at like um, series like The Lost Years, which were obviously referenced in, in Beyond, he was a character that tried to do good even when he wasn't Peter Parker. So basically what I'm saying is if you remove the, the Uncle Ben memories, there are still other things in Ben's life that made him somebody who wanted to do good. Things that were distinct and unique from Peter Parker, from the years that he has been his own individual. And I think I think it goes deeper than just Uncle Ben, with, with both Peter and Ben, ultimately. So, so yeah, I know that this was a long rambling answer, but this is going to be my longest rambling answer. The other dislikes are really nitpicks. Yeah. But I think... I think that there's a there's a severe misunderstanding in Marvel editorial at, at the very least uh, about what the potential of a Ben Riley character is, um, and they keep misusing him, and that 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 upsets me a little bit as a Ben Riley fan. Is is the coast clear? Yes, you may re-enter the room. <laughs> Did you have me muted this whole time, Chris? No, 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 no. I was I was just taking it all in. I was taking it all in. So I will, I'm going to start my rebuttal by uh, sharing this disclaimer. I um, really do not have much of a connection to Ben Riley, the character. Um, For me, I've read every issue of ASM. I've read every issue of Spectacular. I, blew through the clone saga just to get through it it was a slog um for me ben riley doesn't scratch that itch for me in my read of the character 
I get almost like a carbon copy of all the things that we like about Peter. Sure, it was like a reset of being young, fun, and single, but at the core of his character, it felt like a duplication of all the same things. He's the goody two-shoes, the do-the-right-thing guy. The only major difference is his hair color, his costume, and his marital status. And so I kind of see the two characters as overlapping. And one of the reasons that I think Miles stands out is because the, you know, the diverse background notwithstanding is he has a completely different life, a completely different upbringing than Peter. So he stands out enough on his own um, to be a compelling character. And I don't get that as a reader from Ben. Now, maybe that's because I'm a Johnny come lately and I breezed through that clone saga era. Um, but I will say that all of that, you know, information being there, I thought what they did with the clone conspiracy was just egregious for so many reasons. And the primary reasoning be is it didn't make sense. His inspiration for this heel turn to continue a previous theme, it didn't make sense. Like he just shows up in a very dapper suit and a killer Anubis mask. So like the aesthetic of it, I was right there with it. Art was gorgeous on clone conspiracy, but like his reasoning behind that nefarious scheme didn't make sense. So if anything on the end of this arc, and maybe I'm an internal optimist, if anything gives me pause to be open-minded about this storyline moving forward is that it's not done. I felt that the conclusion and the resolution was a bit rushed in a storyline that for, for the most part was methodically and clearly planned out. I thought that the conclusion of this story felt a bit rushed. So I didn't quite get the same motivation, but good God almighty, was it better than clone conspiracy, the stolen memories and being incomplete and being like a puzzle missing a few pieces was a much more apropos inspiration of character than whatever that nonsense was. So I'm interested to see the dynamic between the two of them going forward and if nothing else, this kind of gives Ben his own flavor. Um, Baja I, blessed. I do dig. Now I want Taco Bell. Thank you. Um, nacho fries are still there. Um, I, there's just something aesthetically pleasing to me about dark colors combined with neon. I'm a sucker for it. Um, there's that one uh, Spidey suit where he's got the black suit with the neon green. Love that. I don't know. It's just something that, that scratches that itch for me. So I'm excited to see where they go. And I trust Zeb Wells as a creative voice. Maybe he has a singular vision with this. And so based on the solicit that I just read is that he's going to be a serious focal point. We're not like Ben Reilly's bad. Bye. Like it's not done and over with. And so I'm intrigued to see where we go from here. And it makes a hell of a lot more sense than uh, the man in red. I'll agree that it makes more sense and I can't fault the execution. I just fault the reasoning behind the execution. I don't I don't think that the only way a Ben Riley can exist at Marvel is as a bad guy. 
All right. So what is your first dislike now that we've uh, kind of chewed through my trepidations here? <laughs> we tap danced around this, but um, and this mine are mostly nitpicks. In fact, my second one is probably more critical um, uh, as a whole. This one's a nitpick. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing a lot of dancing today, but we knew that it was temporary. And so that was a bit anticlimactic. However, I feel like they really nailed it with the exception of the conclusion felt rushed. Um, But with that in mind, it it kind of, as I've detailed on the show before, I'm not a big fan of rereading or replaying or rewatching things. um, If I, if I know how the story ends, even if it's my absolute favorite, the only exception I make is stepbrothers because that always makes me happy. Um, I'm not going to call him dad, even if there's a fire, (laughs) but (laughs) Have you seen that movie, Dave? It's the greatest. Movie oh, I have. Ever. I love that movie so much. It's it's pretty darn funny. I I think I think for me it's Dodgeball. Dodgeball is the movie so, that always makes me so smile. Good. So good. Nobody makes me bleed my own blood. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> um, it brought Chuck Norris back into the lexicon. <laughs> yeah, I did. And David Hasselhoff. <laughs> um, but he was the coach for God, the German dodgeball team. Yeah. What a, what an era! Um, and 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 really put beaver steroids on the map, like as as something to watch out for. Um, but <laughs> but yeah, so I I knew that this was a temporary thing because that's how that's how Marvel works. And so you know what? In the spirit of this discussion, I think we really have an episode burst out of what are the most annoying tropes in comics. And for me, it's one of those, I know that this is just a temporary changing of the bedsheets, if you will. Like, we're changing the linens, but we're going to get back to the status quo. And that's one of my biggest nitpick pet peeve tropes. And so with that being said, I loved almost everything about this arc, but it was anticlimactic because we knew the end before we started. Yeah. Uh, and this kind of ties a little bit into with, with my next uh, dislike. So I'll just say, I agree. <laughs> All right, let's dive right into it. What's your second dislike? Uh, so my second dislike is very simply that it was too short. Um, as a uh, Ben Riley fan, it was very nice to see him sort of in the spotlight like this again as Spider-Man. I also think that the mystery of what was going on with the Beyond Corporation could have actually been uh, stretched a little more. There could have been a few more twists in the whole thing. Um, it, as you said, uh, the, the closer it got to the ending of the story, the more it felt uh, like it was kind of going through motions, kind of trying to just, just wrap everything up and put a bow on it for the next creative team. Um, so I wished we would have had maybe, you know, I don't know, six more, eight more issues of this just to kind of fill it out a little bit more. Um, but but yeah, uh, the, the fact that we knew that this was going to be temporary, which is you know very, very common in comic books, as you've mentioned, it's one of the tropiest of tropes. Uh, and the fact that it, it did feel a little rushed at the end, I wish we just had a little bit more time with this setup. Also, and we got this in the last issue, we need more Doug Siravanta, the, 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 the dude that works at Beyond, who's like BSing his way to the top. I love that guy. I need more of him. Yeah, I hope he is not. I, agree. I hope he's not canned. He's great. I'm, I'm there for it. Yeah. All right. So what is your second dislike? I don't know why I put this at second because it was the only real critical one. The uh, decision by Ben to bail on MJ and company in the middle of that 
queen goblin goblin queen it's called this the madeline prior episode <laughs> but like <laughs> the, the naming rights are a little iffy but um so the decision to bail and leave mj to fend for herself which he's perfectly capable of doing might i add as you know was detailed in the script it just felt so out of place for like a carbon copy goody two shoes type of guy and i know that he was going through some things but spider-man doesn't leave people you know like that so that felt very out of character for him and that i think was the beginning of the rushed conclusion also i love the queen goblin goblin queen whatever of ashley kafka you know and this this whole idea of being this mad scientist experiment and i wanted a whole lot more of that so did you just blow through both of your last dislikes because it feels like you did oh crap i did (laughs) i'll go back to it i mean if you have more to say about it no i just need more okay that that seems fair uh then uh let's go ahead and wrap things up with my last uh dislike which is um that I really don't like, uh, and I've kind of hinted this earlier, I don't like the concept of these bonus issues. Um, I, I think it's weird to have um, critical storytelling happening in an in-between issue that is not part of the main line. I mean, the, these issues like, you know, Aunt May's little adventure with Dr. Octopus or MJ and, and Black Cat's team up, these things are critical to the overall story. And just because they don't focus on Peter Parker or in this case, Ben Riley, doesn't mean that they're not vital parts of the story. I find it weird to divorce uh, a part of a storyline into these extraneous issues because A, people might might skip them and miss out on really good stuff and b i don't i think it's training um comic book readers to expect that every issue is some kind of action yes. spectacular yes. and it doesn't have to be these quiet moments between characters that we got here and and you can't even say that they weren't necessarily action packed but even like following some of the supporting cast for an issue those are not bad things if it ties all of, to the overall story so I think that the dot bay issues and the dot point one issues or whatever they're doing, they need to stop that crap and just put it in Amazing Spider-Man. It's perfectly fine to have an issue that doesn't focus just on Peter Parker punching someone. It's also perfectly fine to have an issue focus on Aunt May flirting with Doc Ock while Doc Ock doesn't kill people and just throws them around and maims them a little bit. <laughs> this is perfect. This is a perfectly good spider-man issue so it should be an amazing spider-man it should be part of the main series i'm not a big fan of this in between issue crap man it's just one more thing that you have to hunt down if i go to my local comic book shop and i say i want to collect amazing spider-man i don't want to have to stand there and by the way give me all the dot bay issues too like what crap is that that's just so silly man so yeah that's that's one of my criticisms and i know this is not exclusive to the beyond era but considering that how consequential those issues were to the overall story, it felt really egregious to remove that stuff from the main line Amazing Spider-Man series, Chris. And I think we talked about this being too short. I think it was in addition to the grift is strong here. Like, for God's sake, we had a new issue almost weekly, if not weekly. Um, and so I feel like it was an oversaturation. And if you would have spaced that out, and even if you wanted to keep them the Bay issues, I love that I've been super thirsty uh, this episode and we're calling them the Bay issues. But um, 
uh, I think if you wanted to keep that format, I think if you were to sparse that out, and I know the pandemic and playing catch up has probably some to do with this, but I think we could have really stretched this out. And I know we wanted a palette cleanser before the new creative team, but like, what, what's the rush? Like, let it breathe. And it feels like an oversaturation of content. It feels like they're dunking our head, albeit great content, dunking our head underwater to where we didn't have an issue this past week. I'm like, did I miss something? And so it's just a little bit disorienting to have boom, 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 boom. And like even multiple weeks now, it, it came great. I said it earlier with the, the two black cat centric issues. Um, releasing on the same week, but I feel like spacing that out a little bit would have been a better decision, at least from my view. Yeah, I can agree with that, Chris. All right, and I screwed up the format. I'm sorry, but give us more Goblin Queen Queen Goblin. Have us Queen... I want <laughs> I want Goblin Queen Maddie Pryor versus Queen Goblin. I want that face-off. That's what I want. That's my third dislike. You should have done that. And be like, girl, I had the name first. Like, what are you doing? Why are you coming for? I have a, I have a cease and desist letter right here, Ashley. <laughs> I'd be there for that. All right. So that wraps up our byword beyond big talk. That's a lot of bees. I can't help myself. I'm sorry. Not sorry. Um, what did you think about the entire beyond arc? I know for I know from you know talking to friends who were not regular ASM readers, it did draw them in based on the quality of the writing and the art. So interested to hear your perspective. Be sure to hit us up on social media, Twitter and Instagram at NerdByWord or individually that nerd Dave, that nerd Chris. But when we come back from this, our final break, we're gonna hit you with two more nerd commendations. <laughs> All right, we're back for everybody's favorite segment. And Dave, the lingering effects on separating art from artists episode seem to still be stretching out to you. Yes, they, they, that's exactly what caused this, this nerd commendation. Um, so we talked, uh, you know, at length about separating art from artist a few episodes ago and how, you know, how, how do you react when, uh, you know, an artist or, or writer that you really enjoyed in the past, um, you know, says or does some stuff that you find objectionable um, and, and how, how do you relate to the art at that point? And one of the people that I didn't particularly mention, but did uh, come up before in previous episodes was um, Chuck Dixon, who was one of the main architects of the Batman universe for a hot second, um, is, you know, responsible for, you know, characters like Spoiler, the first ongoing Nightwing series, the, the first ongoing Robin series, and just, you know, having his fingers on pretty much um, everything. I mean, if I remember correctly, Stephanie Brown is actually a Chuck Dixon creation. So I have a very um, strong affinity for that era in, in Batman comics. And after our discussion, you know, and, and, you know, then finding out that he has made some pro comics gate uh, comments in the past, although there's, you know, somewhat of an argument online of whether he is a full adherent to that particular movement or not. Um, and and my general dislike of of comic skate in general, I decided you know I need to maybe punt back and see if how I relate 
to a book that he wrote that, I, that I'm really more fuzzy on than not because I didn't follow it that closely when it originally came out. And that's Birds of Prey, um, another book that originated with Chuck Dixon and is a, a, a name that we still hear a lot, right down to having a, a movie that was named Harley Quinn uh, or Birds of Prey and the fantabulous emancipation of Harley Quinn, which is really more of a Harley Quinn than a Birds of Prey um, story, but still. Um, now, obviously, Gail Simone has probably the most famous run on Birds of Prey and the most critically acclaimed, but the beginning point is, is Chuck Dixon. And so I decided to get into DC Universe Infinite and reread um, Dixon's Birds of Prey. And it, it's gotten me a bit to a conclusion about this art and artist thing. I think... Um, ultimately, things that I encountered and enjoyed to some extent before um, the the revelations uh, of you know d- you know saying or doing things that are objectionable. I think I kind of am, am at the place where I'm willing to maintain my relationship with those works, while at the same time being willing to say I don't think I can support anything from this individual in the future. What it comes right down to is. If I take a step back and separate Chuck Dixon from Comicsgate, Birds of Prey is good. Uh, it, it's a really good series. Uh, he wrote um, with uh, varying artists uh, five one shots leading over the course of 1995 to 1997. And then in 1998, the uh, ongoing Birds of Prey series started. Uh, and he was the primary writer through issue 46, 46. And in all of this, we get uh, the blossoming friendship between Oracle, formerly Batgirl, Barbara Gordon, who was, of course, shot by the Joker and uh, left paralyzed, and who reinvented herself as Oracle, as sort of this information broker, uh, hacker, person behind the microphone and since she cannot go out in the field herself anymore she decides that she needs an agent and she picks Dinah Lance the Black Canary and the relationship between these two characters is basically what carries this entire series I mean the two characters don't even meet in person for oh I don't know man like 20-25 issues or something it's absolutely bonkers. Uh, Dinah Lance does not know who Oracle is, and still, just by speaking with each other uh, and going through things together, they kind of build this relationship. And it's this this incredible tension that builds over time until the two actually finally meet in person um, when these people are coming after Oracle and, and Barbara needs her to literally come right to the rescue, even though, let's be very, very clear, there is nothing absolutely nothing helpless about wheelchair-bound Barbara Gordon under the pen of Chuck Dixon. It's so it's so difficult for me to reconcile in a lot of ways the the comments that, that Chuck Dixon has made in, in favor of Comicsgate and then being the guy who, who wrote this incredible girl power comic book of Birds of Prey with, with Barbara Gordon and Dinah Lance both being, you know, these, these incredibly strong women who, you know, do not put up with any crap. And Barbara Gordon is never written uh, as, 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 as helpless just because he's, he's uh, because she's in a wheelchair. She's incredibly strong and, and powerful and, and 
very often gets into into fights and 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 wins. And so the the series is uh, foundational, I think, for what would ultimately come later with Gail Simone's run, which is the next thing that I'm planning on diving into. Um, but if you're a fan of Oracle, uh, Barbara Gordon, if you're a fan of, uh, you know, Black Canary, I think this is almost required reading. It is just really, really high quality stuff that there are, you know, every once in a while, there's maybe an issue that's a little weaker, but then it comes roaring back with a really, really strong storyline again. It's it's just really, really good bat family, I guess, storytelling. Um, and so ultimately... Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to nerd commend that it. it's just good stuff, Chris. Yeah. I always think of one of my favorite scenes of the Lorax film, uh, the, the animated film from about a decade ago yes. where he's, he, he eats the marshmallow and he looks him at the once in the eye and says, nah, I'm going to eat this, but I'm highly offended by it. And that's how I feel like separating art from artists for the most part. I mean, like I'm going to read this, but you're a piece of shit. So, um, you know, and, and it's interesting you say that with Chuck Dixon writing this raw, raw girl power book. And that's exactly what I think of when I read uh, anything by Joss Whedon, you know, um, or, you know, something like you've detailed. I, I have no experience, but like Buffy, like this face front feminist, like who's lauded publicly for, you know, being a champion of women's right. And then behind the scenes, behind that veneer, you have these nefarious and awful things. And so it's a very, very difficult needle thread um, that we, you know, as we detailed a couple episodes ago, um, I find myself um, able to kind of wade into that water. I'm loving Moon Knight. It's my nerd commendation next week. We'll talk about that. But so now I want to go read those comics because I went in cold to watching the show know nothing about the comics i've never read a single issue the only time i've seen moon knight pop up is in like a team up with spider-man as a street level hero and so being a fan of you know egyptian mythology and egyptian ancient history is ancient history is my bag like that's what drew me to history to begin with ancient history it's fascinating to me and so i went to my friends who are pretty much experts on moon knight and um darwin i love you uh he said you know well, I would start with the 2014 Warren Ellis run. It's very public behind the scenes how Warren Ellis has behaved towards women and treated women. And so, yikes, to begin with. But that's the starting point for modern, for most people's reading list for Mood Night. So, I mean, it's, it's a difficult th- uh, needle to thread. I think for me, the final, and I said this before, the final line that I draw is when someone is actively benefiting um, and actively out there with their awfulness. I refuse to support J.K. Rowling because she is actively loud and proud about being anti-transgender people. So I can't support her or her work. Uh, As much as I'm a fan of Mads Mikkelsen, I'm not going to go see the new Fantastic Beasts film. Not that they were great to begin with before this news broke. Um, so I think that's where I draw the hard line is someone is still actively benefiting from something and is loud and proud in their awfulness. Ethan Van Shiver can suck eggs, you know, kick rocks. Um, so it's, it's a very difficult needle to thread, but I mean, like I've nerd commended stuff by Scott Lobdell and he has a similar history with women and being a gross creep. So 
I think everything out there in the open, you know it, and then it's, you know, a personal decision to make. I totally agree. All right, so what are you nerd commending this week? Oh, boy. If uh, this should come as no surprise, if you've paid attention to my Twitter feed on my personal account, um, I had a decision to make. I had enough expendable income to make one purchase video game wise. Was it WWE 2K22 or Elden Ring? And one of the biggest things that I come to when making, especially a new game purchase, I usually wait till there's a sale on the digital store or it comes to Game Pass. I need bang for buck. I need playable time. And as much as I'm enjoying getting back into pro wrestling, I know I knew that Elden Ring was going to give me hours upon hours upon months upon years of content. And that is absolutely the case. Now, the only trepidation that I had before making this purchase was I heard rumblings that it was incredibly difficult. And as I've detailed on the show before, due to my multiple disabilities, difficult video games are a problem for me. And as I also detailed in my Twitter feed, all the rumors are true. However, I did some research. I had to like get super nerdy with it. I had to do some deep dives online on some YouTube pages, and I finally found some actual beginner's guides. It was a little gatekeepy with some of the previous quote-unquote beginner's guides because I found out this is like the third or fourth iteration of the Dark Souls franchise, which I did not know existed before I made this purchase. So a lot of the fighting styles and everything, this was basically a continuation of that. Thanks to... um, the YouTube video that I found that I've posted on my Twitter feed. Um, if, if you want to check that out, this broke it down to like, if you are new to this franchise, this fight style and everything, couple that with a couple of friends who have given me tips and tricks. I'm having a great time with it. Now, everything makes a whole lot more sense. I am. It is what I love about this game is it is all the things I love about in a video game, open world, personal choices, customizable options. For Pete's sake, look at my profile picture on Twitter. I made Kurt freaking Wagner with blue skin, the beard, has to have the beard, and yellow eyes. Like you can create and customize your character to the nth degree. And that's such a fascinating, you know, possibility for me. Uh, endless list of possibilities. It's super fun. And then just like, it's it's... There's so many options based on the character build that you start off with and then you build and there's just so much absolute liberty that I'll probably be playing this game for years because it's just that much Um, uh, along the same lines of of like a Skyrim uh, open world customizable. Like there's people that have been playing Skyrim for 10 plus years and still finding new things to do. That's along the same lines of Elden Ring. So Um, Yes, it's very difficult at the onset, but with a few tips and tricks that if you're interested in diving into, I can point you in the right direction, point you to the right people. Everything is much more doable now, and I'm no longer throwing controllers. I threw a controller for the first time in over a decade, so that's an accomplishment. Um, and, And I rage quit, and I almost asked for a refund. That's how frustrated I was that first night. But now everything's peachy, and my dude is maxed out. Uh, not maxed out, but leveling up slowly but surely. I'm farming runes, upgrading my character, leveling up. He's got some magical powers. Everything's swaggy right now. So Elden Ring is a great experience. Um, 
yes, there are some growing pains at the beginning, especially if you're absolutely new to it. But if you get the right advice and you do the right research, um, and again, I could point you in the right direction, it is an absolute blast. Yeah, I uh, when I first started coming back to writing about pop culture and stuff uh, a few years back, one of the first things I wrote was about from software and particularly from software uh, fans who have sort of this toxic one should go get good attitude just because not everybody naturally gravitates towards uber difficult video games. And this this cult of difficulty that has sprung up always disturbs me a little bit. Um, I'm very interested in Elden Ring. I'm I'm probably going to give it a shot at some point um, when I can pick it up a little cheaper and 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 kind of try to dive in. Um, but I generally like games better that I have a little bit control over the difficulty. So if I'm like super busy and I don't have the time to like get good, I can still kind of have an experience with yeah. it. So. I'm I'm interested for sure, and I'll probably give it a shot at some point. But I'm probably going to give myself a little bit of time before I do. Yeah, for sure. Um, and and like I said, if you guys are interested, be sure to hit me up on social media. And I'll point you in the right direction of the advice that was priceless for me in starting out. Also, if you're a gatekeeper, you suck. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> that wrapps up another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. Thanks for going beyond with us. Uh, be sure to tune in next week and every week. And we are just two episodes away from our Deep Space Nine spectacular. So be sure to send us your questions. You can tweet or you can tweet at us at Nerd by Word on Twitter or Instagram. Send us your questions. Uh, we're not exactly sure how this is going to take form because it's something we love so much. We just have to wrangle it. So we're giving you two weeks notice, um, not for unemployment. We are... Uh, giving you two weeks to send in your questions. Uh, let's go with the hashtag ByWordDoesDS9. If you want something particularly answered on the show, ByWordDoesDS9. Um, so we're super excited about that episode. Um, but as always, we thank you so much for listening and be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts from, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon or nerdbyword.com. And of course, we would like to hear from you. If you have any comments, requests, suggestions, find us on social media. We're all about that nerdy discourse. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at nerdbyword and individually at that nerd Chris and at that nerd Dave. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy and stay alive in Elden Ring. Good luck. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.